you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit. Verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is, would you read these with me? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Thank you. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we just have two weeks left in this winter series uh, where we're going through the fruit of the Spirit. So today we're talking about gentleness, next week self-control, and then we'll be observing Ash Wednesday and entering into the Lenten season as a church. And I know for myself and as a teaching team, we've heard from many in this room and in the other space that many of us have been experiencing a sense of freshness with this teaching and of conviction as well. And so with just a couple weeks left, I wanna bring both an encouragement and an exhortation for us as we're finishing and moving to the end of the series. And my encouragement is this, that conviction is a gift of the Spirit. So if we're sensing some conviction, that is a grace of God to us, and I encourage you to receive it with gladness. But also, you know, conversations, convictions can sometimes um, not be so holy, right? Or have shades of other things going on. And this is the very exhortation that Paul actually ended that chapter five text with. Uh, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So I want us to sit for just a moment in that exhortation. Because as we're talking about the fruit of the spirit, remember the image of a garden, right? The idea is in the garden, these fruits are growing up together. They're companioning and flourishing in the garden. But the way that this temptation might play out is um, we might grow conceited. So conceit might look like we're looking at kind of the garden of our hearts, the, the soil and how things are growing up. And we might say, well, you know, um, things aren't perfect here, but um, at least they're not like that person, right? Or, you know, in our community, we, you know, we've got some fruits more than others, but whoa, at least we're not like that community. There's a danger, right? And whether we're looking side to side and comparing and tempted to concede or envy, the provocation says, oh, you think you're so patient? And we want to poke and we want to provoke and tempt because secretly in our insecurity, we kind of want other people to fail with us rather than cheering each other on to be flourishing. Because envy looks side to side in the garden and says, 
They're so good. Like, I'll never be that good. Oh, they're so patient. It makes me sick. So Paul is saying, you know, be cautious, right? Receive the conviction, but be cautious about conceit, provocation, and envy. So let's do that as we're walking into these last two weeks. Amen? So this week we're looking at the fruit gentleness. And the Greek word gentleness is proutes. And proutes means meekness, self-forgetfulness. In its fullest form, it's humility. So we have humility. Now the opposite, on the other side of that, we have superiority, self-absorption. And it's in its most excessive prideful form, that's hubris. All right, so hubris the opposite of humility. But humility has a counterfeit or an imposter too. So sometimes what we think is gentleness is actually a sense of inferiority or passivity. And most played out, it's self-loathing or self-hatred. Proutes. So think about that image from the opening video of that horse and the gaucho. Okay, go back to that story we saw unfold. This is actually a really powerful image that captures the heart of gentleness. And I think, you know, it's so interesting to me because I, I loved watching how the gaucho worked with the horse. And think for a moment, because in the image, we are the horse, right? We're the horse and the spirit is the gaucho, right? Now, the gaucho is, is not trying to take away the power of the creature, right? But it's trying to harness it. And I love watching the gaucho work, right? Did you catch that the way that the animal is harnessed, its power is harnessed, is that the trainer tries to catch the gaze of the animal, right? And when it catches the gaze of the horse, the animal experiences the gaucho as calm, rest. And when the creature's eyes dart to the horizon looking to get away, it is shooed, right? And experiences skittishness or fear. And then it catches the eye of the gaucho again and calm, rest. Gentleness is tender strength. Right? It's strength, it's power, but it's tender. It's power that is surrendered to God, emulating Christ, and stewarded with the help of the Spirit. So I want to say that again. It's power, gentleness is power, surrendered to God, emulating Christ Jesus, and stewarded with the Spirit's help. That's gentleness. And it's really fascinating because gentleness or you know, humility is a great word um, for that. Humility really was not a celebrated virtue at all in the ancient world before Christ. Um, maybe some elements of it were valued. Maybe tenderness was valued, but primarily as a gendered role for women. Uh, or maybe even a little bit of mercy from a powerful ruler, but not humility. Humility as a heroic form was pioneered in Christ. 
And it's interesting because the Greek writers, so many ancient writers actually even, they were tragic heroes. And the fatal flaw of the tragic hero was almost always excessive pride or hubris, which is the opposite of humility. And yet there wasn't a heroic archetype that embodied that full, rich humility until Christ Jesus, who turned everything upside down. So think about it. Think about this gentle Jesus. He's the one who is the king of the universe, the most powerful being in the world, who in engaging the redemption, entering the human story, he comes in the most vulnerable form of a newborn. Right? Jesus is the one who is the creator of everything, and it is rightfully owned by him, and yet he does not use his power to turn a stone to bread when tempted by the devil. He is due all honor and glory, and yet he does not demand that honor be given to him in the face of the derision of his own hometown in Nazareth. And ultimately, the king of the universe, who could call down legions of angels, stands before an unjust court. And rather than calling that power down, goes to the cross for the redemption of the world. That's gentle Jesus. Power surrendered to God and stewarded with the Spirit's help. And And yet, this gentle Jesus, too, is the same one who he calls, he uses his power to call the outcast, to touch the leper, to restore the dignity of women and children and the marginalized and the unclean and the outcast. That, too, is gentle Jesus. It's interesting because I think church, we sometimes have a problem still with this idea of gentle Jesus, this humble Jesus, right? So whether we swing to the side of excessive emphasis on the power, right, that can become hubris, we're also tempted sometimes to think about Jesus with a pendulum swing the other way, that counterfeit gentleness, right? We see the docile, meekness as weakness because We get a little nervous about a God, a Christ that's a little too powerful for us. I love uh, this picture. Check out this image. I'll pull up the next one. There you go. Um, This this cracks me up every time. There's this actual whole like body of work of Jesus with dinosaurs out there. If you've ever looked into this. Um, But it cracks me up. Obviously, this is satire, right? This is kind of poking fun at those depictions of Jesus that make him out to look a bit more docile or passive, suspiciously whiter, lighter skinned, and also kind of weak. And so this is that kind of satirical poking fun at that weak white Jesus, right? You got Jesus holding not the little lamb, but the baby velociraptor that could rip your face off, right? Now, what's funny is there is truth in these images of the tender Jesus with baby lamb. In fact, it comes right out of the scriptures. Isaiah 40, verse 11, it reads, He tends his flock like a shepherd. 
He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. That is a beautiful depiction of the tenderness of the Messiah. And yet the verse right before that in Isaiah 40, verse 10 says this. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Do you see it? Power with tenderness. That is humility. And that's why I think Jesus actually used this image to describe himself and his humility and the way he invites us as his disciples to emulate him in gentleness and humility. It's this picture of the yoked oxen, and this is from Matthew 11. I love this story. This um, Jesus uh, is praying this out right after he has sent his disciples out, and they've had this amazing experience with their own power, right? As they're first kind of sent into engaged in ministry. And they return, and they're like, wow, Jesus, you should have seen the amazing things that happened. And Jesus you know, kind of says, that's so great. Be glad that your names are written in the book of life. That's out of the Luke version. In Matthew, he says this. I love it. Starting at 25. At that time, Jesus said, he's praying here, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you, you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for that is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. All you weary and burdened, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't you love that? But to see ourselves in that image of the yoke, right? the animal yoked side by side. We actually first have to do some work to understand our own power because we do have power, right? We have a power that we have to be aware of in order to be able to surrender it to God, to emulate Christ, and to steward with the Spirit's help. We have to be aware of the power we have. And the temptation for people who are experiencing exile is to believe that they are without power. It is very important, and I want to say this clearly to us though this morning, that those who have experienced exile or marginalization through oppression and exploitation, they do experience, in fact, a real and profound loss of power, and particularly social, political, economic power. That's real, and I do not want to understate that. But they are not without power. 
This has been really striking for me to learn about uh, in February. It's part of my just reading in February for Black History Month, I've been trying to center and read more theologians and writers of color um, who are experiencing or have experienced marginalization. And there's a great um, book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree by theologian James Cone. And he talks about the experience of marginalized blacks in the Reconstructionist South. And um, I want to just read this little excerpt because I think it's so striking from the opening chapter. And he writes this about the black community. He writes, Christ crucified manifested God's loving and liberating presence in the contradictions of black life. That transcendent presence in the lives of black Christians that empowered them to believe that ultimately in God's eschatological future, they would not be defeated by the troubles of this world, no matter how great and painful their suffering. Believing this paradox, this absurd claim of faith, was only possible through God's amazing grace and the gift of faith grounded in humility and repentance. There was no place for the proud and the mighty, for people to think that God called them to rule over others. The cross was God's critique of power, white power, with powerless love, snatching victory out of defeat. So we keep that in mind as a way to stay humble as we do look at the realities of our power. So I want us to take a minute this morning, because I don't think we do this very often or, or we're not invited to make space to consider the power with which we have that we can surrender to God. And I'm going to have us actually think about the power that we have in terms of five categories. And I took this from Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Leadership. And so um, there's five categories of power I'm gonna put on the screen. And I want you to be thinking about these areas and where you actually experience that you have power, maybe more or less than people around you, but just think about yourself, right? So there's five categories I want you to think about. So the first one is positional power. Positional power is where you have a formal role, right? So you might be a teacher, a parent or grandparent. Maybe you're a shift manager, a CEO, you're an elder, some kind of formal position, all right? That's the first one. The second one is personal power. And in personal power, that is, you know, you've acquired certain skills or education or maybe even just in your personality that you have, you know that you actually kind of have presence and power when you walk into a space, all right? So that's personal power. And the third one, um, Scazzaro calls it the God factor. Um, and he's talking about a spiritual authority, but he's also even just talking about, um, you know, who, with whom do you actually have some spiritual influence? Like who looks up to you? Are there people in your life that look up to you in your faith or come to you for advice or wisdom? Right? In that dynamic, you have kind of a God factor, a spiritual power. The fourth one is relational power. So here, be thinking about your relationships, your family and friends. And relational power is really a, a byproduct of having history with people. So you have power in those relationships because you kind of just know each other's stuff, right? You know the good and the bad and the really bad. And that makes us kind of vulnerable, right? There's some power we have in those relationships, okay? Last one is cultural 
power. And this could cover a number of categories, but be thinking about things like how your gender or your age, your ethnicity, class, your marital status, your sexual orientation, how do those things actually give you in your context, in our cultural context, some measure of power, more or less power, okay? So I want you to take a moment. I'm actually gonna give you about 30 seconds for my introverts. That is not enough time, introverts. I just acknowledge that. Um, but I'm gonna give all of you 30 seconds, just internally or if you have some scratch paper, I want you to think about the places that you actually have power to steward or to be surrendered in some of these areas. And then hold tight, because extroverts, I'm gonna make you, let you talk to each other too. So 30 seconds, I want you to think with God about where you have power in these places, which is the capacity to influence, right? Okay, so I'm going to use my positional power as the teacher to uh, now send you into groups. I know this is not everyone's favorite thing, but I want you to actually talk to each other a little bit. And I want you to share maybe groups of like three to six. That's fine. You know, it's not important that everyone speak, but I'd love to give you a chance to talk. And I want you to talk about what was that like for you to even just take a moment to think about where you have power. So what was that like for you? And is there anything you noticed? Maybe something surprised you that you were thinking about. So how did it feel to think about it? And what did you notice? So turn into groups, take a few minutes, and talk to each other about what you saw and what that was like. Okay? Go for it. Okay, well, I hope that was at least the start of conversations I just encourage you to continue to have with one another. Because the reality is that in, in these areas and others, we really do have, as a, a gift of grace, we have power that God invites us to surrender to him to emulate Christ with and to be stewarded with the help of the Spirit. And the last kind of picture that I, I want to give us to think about before I, I recommend some maybe very practical steps you could take is go back to the, even some of the word picture in, in gentleness or in humility, right? So if humility is kind of, it's the, the Latin version of that word, the best capturing. The word humility, the root of that actually means to the earth, it means earth. Humus means earth. And so to be humble is literally to be on the ground. There's a great Psalm 18, it says it this way. It says, you've given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. And some versions say it this way, you protect me with your saving shield, you support me with your right hand, you have stooped to make me great. Humility. And as we work to cultivate with the Spirit's help that fruit of gentleness, when that takes hold and is expressed in us individually and communally, it might look a little something like this. So just even imagine, I want to give you kind of a description, a vivid description of a community that embodies this kind of fruit. The in this community, people do not wound each other with rash words or cold disregard. The gentle person acknowledges their own vulnerability to sin and weakness, enabling deep 
empathy, empowers others by renouncing personal agendas, responds with reverence for the dignity of others, even those who mock, ridicule, or dismiss them, does not buckle under pressure, is not silent in the face of injustice, does not degrade, belittle, or slander. The gentle one is not threatened by opposition or resentment, is not paralyzed or overwhelmed when confronted with others' pains. This beloved community won't run away frightened or respond angrily in insecurity. Tensions are diminished and there is rest and reconciliation. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And I would love to propose just a few practical ways that maybe you could live into humility, that stooping down to the ground kind of posture, that spirit might grow up more gentleness in us. So practically, maybe that looks like this week that you do something that you consider, quote unquote, beneath yourself. Okay, that's one idea. What if you pray for those who bother you or oppose you? What if you pray for them on your knees? Why don't you ask someone this week how they experience you? Do they experience you as humble, gentle, powerful, forceful? Ask for that feedback and deal honestly with your own sin, confessing it to others. Or perhaps respond tenderly when someone wrongs you this week. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, we worship you as the one who has embodied true gentleness and humility. And we long to take whatever power we have and surrender it to you. And with the help of your Holy Spirit to be like you, Christ. To steward that. So, Lord, I pray that each person here would even have a very practical um, sense of even one way they could choose to with you to stoop down. To choose humility that gentleness might grow up in our souls and in our community. So Christ, we do fix our eyes on you and we worship you as the one who is our great model and example of gentleness and humility. Let's worship this Christ together. <laughs>